Brethren, if you haven't already done so, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. And let me begin this morning by reminding you of the words of the Apostle Paul, which he wrote to Timothy. whereby he said the following in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet... For this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Brethren, it's always a remarkable thing when we contemplate the fact that Paul called himself the chief of sinners. We look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we see the remarkable works, actions, sermons, letters that he was used of God to produce, and yet he knew who he was apart from grace. He was the chief of sinners. And so sinful was his activity, as he said, he was a blasphemer and persecutor in his defense before Agrippa. He said that he not only did lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, he says, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul was the chief of sinners, a blasphemer, a man who brutalized Christians. But one thing we understand is this, is that as the chief of sinners, Paul knew knew that no one is beyond hope. He wasn't beyond hope. No one is beyond hope. And I would say to you, brethren, That truth, the reality of the fact that no one is beyond hope, is why this letter to Philemon exists. Because Paul, as he was sitting in prison, ministered to Onesimus, who would would have been counted as a man beyond hope because of his sin and his rebellion and his status in this world. Paul knew that no man is beyond hope, and he ministered the gospel to Onesimus. 
And the letter to Philemon exists because not only did Paul minister to Onesimus in ministering the gospel to him, but it was his design to return Onesimus back to Philemon so that they both would learn a very important lesson. Onesimus needed to know and understand that his liberty in Christ was not now to be used as a license for sin. He needed to go back and make amends with Philemon. Philemon needed to understand that he needed to receive Onesimus back, not in the way that the world sees Onesimus, but in view of who he really is now, a child of God. Both men needed to learn important lessons. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at Paul's central appeal in this epistle. Paul said that he would not command Philemon, even though he had the confidence in Christ and even the authority to do so. Rather than doing that, he said in verse 9, yet for the sake of love, I rather appeal to you. And we talked already about what the appeal was. It really comes in two parts. His appeal to Philemon was to accept Onesimus as he would accept Paul. In other words, take him back into your arms in the same way in which you would receive me. And the other part of that appeal was simply this, is that if he owes anything to you, charge that to my account. You put that on my bill. Paul also said that he appealed to him in love. Why? Because he did not want Philemon to act out of compulsion, but out of his own free will. I want this to come out of your heart, a heart that has been filled with faith and love. And by the way, that's why we took the time to go through verses 4, four through 7, because it's in those verses that Paul talks about repeatedly of the faith and love that was in Philemon. And he's basically saying, listen, look at the treasury of grace that has been poured out into your life and think about the manner in which God has poured out his love in you. I want you to draw from that treasury and act accordingly in your reception of Onesimus, in your treatment of Onesimus. And this is why he made the appeal to Philemon to do, as he says in verse 8, that which is anikon, proper. That word anikon means literally to assemble pieces together that fit. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I loved putting together puzzles. And it just, uh, whenever I was sick and I had to stay home from school, my mother would give me a a box, a puzzle, and you know, a thousand-piece puzzle or whatever. And I don't know about you, but I would take a puzzle piece, I'd look at it, and I'd think to myself, this has got to go in this spot right here. It looks like it, and the shape is, looks like it's right and everything. And then you start pushing it in there, and you realize that maybe it doesn't fit. And then you push a little bit harder, still doesn't fit, and then you realize that doesn't fit. Paul's telling Philemon, you need to do the very thing that fits. And the very thing that fits is that you would receive Onesimus with grace and with love and treat him accordingly, accordingly to the fact that he is a man who's now coming back to you to make matters right. And he's coming to you now as a child of God. And so this morning, I'd like for us to move further into this epistle to consider further 
The identity that Paul gives to Onesimus, his character that we learn a little bit about in view of what Paul writes, and also the moral duty that was set upon Onesimus to, in fact, return to Philemon in order to make things right. And so in verses 10 through 12, he says this, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart. My very heart. What a remarkable identity that Paul gives to Onesimus. Look with me at what he says in verse 10 again. He says to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. My child. You know, there are a lot of things that Paul could have called Onesimus, at least by virtue of the vantage point of the world. How did the world look at Onesimus? How would the world identify and label Onesimus? Well, the world would likely identify him as a runaway slave because that's what he was. He was a runaway slave. And he was therefore also a thief, fugitive of the law, or you could identify him simply as a servant of Philemon. But then I think it's important that we understand the way in which the world would have identified Onesimus. Slaves filled the streets in the Roman Empire, and it's really kind of hard to imagine. We, we tried, you know, to the, whatever extent you've studied slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire, but it's really kind of a, something that we have to try to grasp when we understand that the slave population in first century Roman Empire was somewhere between a third to a half. I mean, literally, wherever you went, you would see slaves walking in the streets. And because of this, the slave's identity was very well defined in society. Andrew Borkowski, in his textbook of the Roman law, reminds us of the fact that you had basically three different categories of slaves as they walked about in the streets of the Roman Empire. First of all, you had slaves who were slaves because they were war captives. As Rome continued to expand its territories and, and take over various nations, they would take individuals from those populations and enslave them. Also, and this is a factor that really is very important, a great number of slaves were criminals, criminals who committed various crimes. According to the 12 tables of Roman law, a thief who was caught stealing became the slave of his victim. Now think about that for a minute. We use the expression of paying a, 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 a criminal, paying back their debt to society. What do we do with criminals in the modern day? We put them in a, in, in a prison, in a long-term prison, and we pay for their food and lodging, and they might do some community service from time to time, but for the most part, they're not paying back to society, we're paying for them. It's really kind of an interesting thing, but in their day, if you were caught stealing from someone else, you would have to re make remuneration back to that individual, restitution back to that individual for what you took. And it oftentimes took the form of some kind of labor 
We have to keep in mind the fact that the incarceration systems of the past and present are very different. Roman prisons were not designed for mass and long-term incarceration as they are today, but were temporary facilities used primarily for those awaiting trial or execution. Thus, war captives and criminals who by modern standards would normally be incarcerated lived amidst society as penal slaves. The third category of these categories would be generational slavery. So if you were born of a slave, you were automatically a slave. But the thing we have to keep in mind is, is that all of these categories were put into one sorting bin of classification. If you were a slave, you were counted as a thing or a raise or chattel. Property. We get the word cattle from the word chattel. These terms are related. Mere property. Not necessarily human being. And when it came to a runaway slave, a runaway slave was guilty of theft by virtue of the fact that they literally were stealing themselves. That's how they counted it. Slave ran, ran away from his master. Suddenly he was a thief by virtue of the act of running away. And Joanne Shelton in her book, As the Romans Did, reminds us of this. They were often tracked, these runaway slaves, they were often tracked by professional slave hunters and heralds were typically dispatched to notify the public about the escapee's name and identity. This was their world. And this was the world of Onesimus, runaway slave, mere property, a thief thereby, and one who had heralds running around identifying and trying to find this individual in order to return him to Philemon. Lots of things that Paul could have called Onesimus. But what does he call him? He calls him my child. Brethren, this is beautiful. This is the identity that matters. Whatever the world would say about Onesimus, this is the identity that matters. My child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Brethren, we must never see our fellow human beings as being beyond the reach of God's redeeming mercy and grace. The moment we entertain such thoughts, we must repent of such thinking. I would submit to you that part of the beauty of the book of Philemon is that both men, Paul and Onesimus, were great sinners, but they both discovered that God's grace is greater than all our sin, as we sing in the hymn. So Paul says, he's my child, whom I have begotten, whom I have begotten. Here he uses the word ganao, the word that is normally used to speak of generating or creating something. When a, a child is born, that's exactly the term that we would use, is that that child was begotten, created. It's also used, of course, in the spiritual sense of our salvation. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and here he uses the word Genethe, from Ganao. 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the, the, cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a term that speaks of spiritual regeneration. It speaks of the work of God whereby we were brought from death into life by the work of God. By the way, when Jesus says born again, really the word is, um, the, the Greek word is anothen. Literally, it means from above. Being born from above. In other words, this is God sending his grace and mercy to the sinner. And by means of the Holy Spirit, as he discusses in that chapter, we are regenerated and made his possession. And so Paul clearly is not claiming to be the active agent of Onesimus' salvation, but he was used as God's instrument to share the gospel with Onesimus so that he would, in fact, become a child of God. Paul oftentimes speaks of his instrumentality in this sense as being an instrument of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for example, in verses 6 and 7, he speaks of his own ministry regarding the church at Corinth. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. And by the way, even in the material realm, the begetting of children is somewhat of an illustration of the same concept. A husband and wife, through the act of procreation, are given a child through the, the gift of life. And so they're the instruments of that process, but it is God who gives and ordains that life. When David says in Psalm 139, he says, Thou didst weave Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. That word sakak means literally to construct something by layers. When God forms a life in, in a womb, in a mother's womb, that's exactly what is taking place. The husband and wife, they're the instruments, but it is God who creates the life. And so it is with Onesimus. Paul was the instrument. God was the redeemer. And now he is a child of God for the glory of God. By the way, Paul uses this language elsewhere. And I think it's an important concept to keep in mind. We know that Paul referred to Timothy as his true child in the faith, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. And also he uses the same language when he has to uh, administer several rebukes and stern um, words of correction to the Galatians, who he said were bewitched by false doctrine, he also referred to them as my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Speaking of the idea of his seeking their, their maturation and sanctification in terms of labor pains. We're the instruments, but God is the one who provides the growth. This is the important identity that is given to Onesimus. He calls him my child, begotten in my imprisonment. This is the important identity to give to Onesimus. You know, Paul was in prison, but this never stopped him in his ministry of the word. I love this about the Apostle Paul. There's no stopping this man. To Timothy, he said that though he suffered hardship as a criminal, but he says, but the word of God is not imprisoned. 
He knew that his physical location in a prison could never stop the word of God nor the providence of God. Brethren, I would say to you, this is a crucial lesson for all of us. No matter where we are or what we're doing or what our condition in life is in this world, we need to give up our service unto God, knowing and understanding that he is sovereign over all things. Spurgeon commenting on the book of Philemon says this regarding Paul's ministry to Onesimus in prison. He says, at Rome, Paul was not preaching in St. Peter's. It was in no such noble building. Paul was not preaching in a place like the tabernacle where Onesimus could have had a comfortable seat. No such place as that. But it was probably down there at the back of the Palatine Hill where the Praetorian Guard had their lodgings and where there was a prison called the Praetorium. In a bare room in the barrack prison, Paul sat with a soldier chained to his hand, preaching to all who were admitted to hear him. And there it was that the grace of God reached the heart of this wild young man. And oh, what a change it made in him immediately. Now you see him repenting of his sin, grieved to think he had wronged a good man, vexed to see the depravity of his heart as well as the error of his life. He weeps. Paul preaches to him Christ crucified, and the glance of joy is in his eye, and from that heavy heart, a heavy load is taken. Glory be to God. Put Paul in prison, and it will not stop him for a second. Oh, that God would give us such persevering grace in our own lives, no matter what our station or condition is. The world would identify Onesimus as a mere thing, a runaway slave. But Paul rightly identified him for who he really is, a child of God, his child begotten in his imprisonment. But then Paul speaks to the character of Onesimus, and this is also very important. He speaks of his character. Read again with me in verses 10 through 12. He says, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart. I love this. Sending my very heart. Think of the contrast of what Paul is saying here. He says to him, he was useless. He was useless to you. Again, we've already talked about it. Runaway slave, you know what a runaway slave is? It's just an expenditure. Not only do you lose the service of the individual, but now you've got to pay money to, to hire heralds to go find the individual. It's nothing but a monetary loss. If you want to count it that way, that's the way the world would look at this. But Paul wants Philemon to think about the spiritual reality of things. And we need to remember, brethren, that apart from grace, we're all called useless. In fact, that same word, useless, is used in Romans chapter 3 and verse 12. It says that all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. That's you and that's me. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Whenever I talk to people who imagine that there's just a little light of goodness in the human heart, I just say to them, 
I have some very bad news for you. <laughs> and it applies to you and it applies to me. We're, we're all counted as useless. Why? Because apart from grace, who do we live for? Ourselves. I just read that in Titus chapter 3. That's what we are apart from grace. We're counted as useless because of sin. We were created to serve and worship God and honor him, but sin eradicates this calling completely, such that our best efforts are counted as filthy rags in the sight of Almighty God. But by grace, if any man is in Christ, he is called, what, a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that is entirely the work of God. The new birth transforms us from selfish hedonists to become lovers of God who seek to serve him and others. And we can only be made useful by the new birth. And so Paul says to Philemon, he's now useful. I love this. He is now useful both to you and to me, to both of us. Philemon, remember what this is all about, in other words. He's not saying that, you know what, he's useful to me in prison. I'd like to keep him here. No, he's saying, you know what, he's useful not only to me here in prison, but he's useful to you as well. Why? Because we're on the same team. Called the family of God. And he's now a member of that family. Again, monetarily speaking, Onesimus ran away. Philemon likely lost precious time, energy, and money trying to track him down. Spiritually, in, in view of God's sovereign providence, the Lord led him to Paul to hear the gospel. He believed by grace and demonstrated tremendous faith in character and transformation. So much so that he is a child of God who bears the very heart of the Apostle Paul, the very character and zeal for the glory of God. Brethren, this is powerful. And it really speaks to the beauty of God's providence. I love what Spurgeon says about this idea of God's providence. I mean, think of it. Onesimus runs away, finds Paul, goes from one Christian context and he goes to another one, hears the gospel, is saved. He's not going to be returned back to the home that he ran away from. Only God could accomplish such a work of divine providence. Spurgeon says this, he says, have you a son who has left home? Is he a willful, wayward young man who has gone away because he could not bear the restraints of a Christian family? It is a sad thing, it should be so, a very sad thing, but do not despond or even have a thought of despair about him. You do not know where he is, but God does. And you cannot follow him, but the Spirit of God can. How often do we fret over the temporal circumstances of those unbelievers who become ensnared by the world. We can and must still pray that they may become prodigal children who flee from the pigsties of the world and run into the embrace of a loving heavenly father. God does this kind of work all the time. 
And we must never lose hope in this. And he did it in the life of, of Onesimus. In fact, this is why Paul says in Philemon, verses 15 and 16, he says, For perhaps he, Onesimus, was for a reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. We're not in that text yet. We'll get there. But that's what Paul is saying. Look at the divine providence of God here. Look what God is doing. He's made him a child of God. And you receive him back accordingly. When Paul says in verse 12, he says, I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very splatna. I love saying that word. I don't know why. It was one of the first Greek words I learned when I was studying Greek in seminary, and I looked at that word, and I just thought, that's a great word. It's splachna. Bowels. That's what it means. Your guts. It's that feeling that you have when you, you feel very intensely about something. You feel it to the core of your being. In fact, in the, in the King James translation and the Young's literal translation, it says this, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is my own bowels. What does it mean? Again, it means deep-seated affection, zeal, and intensity. Jesus, it says of Jesus that seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion, compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. The good Samaritan who saw the injured man on the road felt splachna, compassion for him. Again, it speaks of deep affection and compassion. What I love about this is the following. Onesimus had the same affection and compassion that is found in the heart of the apostle Paul. You know, it takes time to see who people are. I oftentimes say, time tells all. Time tells all. You can meet an individual, they can smile and tell you about their life and everything and so forth, but you know, it takes time to get to know a person. And oftentimes, God uses trials to intensify that experience of learning about who a person is because when you're going through a trial, suddenly who you really are becomes evident. We don't know the details, but somehow Paul had the time and experience with Onesimus sufficient for him to be able to make a profound statement like this to say, you know what, let me tell you about Onesimus. He bears the same heart the same splachna, the same intensity of affections and compassion that I myself have. That is a commendation that is powerful. For Paul to speak so confidently and personally regarding Onesimus means that he must have had some sort of an intense time of ministry with him such that Onesimus was not merely trained in his mind regarding theology, 
But he was nurtured by Paul in such a way so as to understand that truth must impact the inner man, filling us with zeal and passion, with a jealousy for God's glory, just like the apostle Paul. And that's who Onesimus was. So his identity is known, his character is seen. And now we come to the moral duty that was upon Onesimus. In verse 12, Paul says this. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. I'll say more about that next Lord's Day. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul wanted to re retain him, but there was something more important than this. Paul was deeply blessed by the ministry of Onesimus, but there was a moral duty and responsibility that was upon Onesimus, Paul, as well, that Onesimus would go back to Philemon and make matters right. I think I've shared this with a few people already, but I met my precious bride in our hometown of Redlands in 1985. I was just saved in 82, so I was only three years old in the Lord. And as Sandra and I would spend time together, as we were getting to know each other, we were going to a church together, and I'll never forget the experience of standing up during the greeting time and turning around and talking to the individual behind me, who I knew in my former life as an unbeliever, who I had abused in the sense of receiving money from him and never paying him back. And so I'm shaking his hand and I'm looking right into his eyeballs and I'm thinking to myself, oh my, we know each other. I had to persuade him, first of all, that we knew each other. I said, uh, we knew each other back, I think we lived, I think I rented from you for a while. And I, I said, I owe you money. <laughs> he said, really? I said, I think I, think I do. And there's Sanders standing right next to me. <laughs> I couldn't help but to think to myself, what in the world is she thinking about me? Because that happened not just once. That happened a few times. And he said, I don't know if you owe me money, but don't worry about it. But I asked for his forgiveness anyway. You know, we're set free in Christ not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. And where we need to make restitution, we must, for Christ's sake. Again, Spurgeon says this. He says, I always like to see a resolve to make restitution of former wrongs in people who profess to be converted. If they have taken any money wrongfully, they ought to repay it. If they have in any way robbed or wronged another, I think the first instincts of grace in the heart will suggest compensation in all ways within our power. 
Do not think it is to be got over by saying, God has forgiven me and therefore I may leave it. No, dear friend, but inasmuch as God has forgiven you, try to undo all the wrong and prove the sincerity of your repentance by so doing. So Onesimus will go back to Philemon and work out his term of years with him or otherwise to do Philemon's wishes. For though he might have preferred to wait upon Paul, his first duty was due to the man whom he had injured. That showed a gentle, humble, honest, upright spirit, and let Onesimus be commended for it. Nay, let the grace of God be extolled for it. Onesimus was now a freed man in Christ, but he was not to use his freedom as an opportunity for evil. And though Paul desired to retain Onesimus as he served Paul in prison, Paul saw a greater need in Philemon to receive Onesimus back to him according to the grace and love that God had given to him. And Onesimus had the duty to make restitution as necessary to Philemon. Brethren, so often we make choices based upon expediency and based upon our own felt needs when instead we ought to consider our choices in view of the priority of the glory of God and the growth of his people. And this latter priority, this very priority, was the priority and focus of the Apostle Paul, both for Philemon and Onesimus. Brethren, let me offer a few concluding exhortations and thoughts here. We must mortify and shun constantly all of the shallow classifications that we find in this world regarding human beings. And there are many. There are many ways in which we denigrate other human beings or we exalt human beings to the denigration of others and we do it in all different ways. And we have to guard against that. In fact, some of the ways in which we exalt some people is a part of the problem. Because we'll look at some people as being up here and then that cr creates another class of people who are down here in some form or fashion. And so we have what we consider to be respectable positions in our society. By the way, it used to be a respectable thing to be a politician. I'm not sure what to say about that now. I'm not trying to be political, but I just don't even know. If somebody says I'm a congressman or a senator, I don't know. they might want to duck. Doctors, corporate managers, how about sports professionals? Our society worships these people. Celebrities, oh, they're up here. Why did they get the microphone? Have you listened to these people? No offense, but a lot of these people, you listen to them and they think to yourself, why, why are they getting the microphone? If we met Onesimus, knowing that he had the very heart and zeal of the Apostle Paul himself, I think we'd rather give him the microphone, even though he was a man of low estate and esteem in society. 
Brethren, we need to guard against the exaltation or the denigration of human beings. We need to see things as they really are, valuing and cherishing human life, knowing that men and women are created in the image and likeness of God, and they're either serving sin or they're they're serving God in his glory. And it's the children of God who serve God in his glory that we need to honor and listen to And even those who do not know Christ, we need to honor them as well by loving them enough to share Christ with them. Secondly, and I'll close with this. My simple question for you is this. What do you do if you get thrown in prison? Start a prison ministry. That's what what Paul did. Every time he was incarcerated, every time he was shackled, share Christ. It doesn't matter what our condition is. It doesn't matter where we are. We retain our priorities always. This is what we're called to do. Don't get me wrong. We always struggle with our circumstances. If you're a human being, that's that's a natural and normal struggle. And sometimes we can become paralyzed by means of fear. Fear of our circumstances, fear of men, fear of what others may do to us. It can paralyze us, but we must resist that. And the way that we do this is to keep our eyes on Jesus. To look to heaven and to see him on the throne. Seated at the right hand of the Father and knowing that someday we'll be with him in glory. This is why when Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That word worthy bears the idea of putting something on a scale and evaluating and assessing its worth. And he's basically saying, here are your trials on one side of the scale. Here's eternal glory in heaven. And it goes like this. It's not even worthy to compare the two. So don't compare them. Look to Christ. Serve him always, no matter what your circumstances are. J.C. Rowell is right when he says this. He says, I'm more convinced as I grow older that to keep our eyes fixed on the second coming of Christ is the secret of Christian peace. If he's not our focus... If we're not looking for and longing for our Savior in his return, then we're not going to have peace. We're going to be looking at the affairs of this life, the circumstances of our life, living in fear constantly, and we must shun this. No matter where we are or what we're doing, our priority needs to be to glorify the name of the 